And this is going to get worse before it get better. We have not seen the worst of this yet. Mm. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest in China Lake, California, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, we will be joined by a U.S. congressman to discuss, among other things, some of the many, many controversial things that Donald Trump has been doing as the nation and its media have otherwise been gripped with coverage of the still unfolding catastrophic disaster of Harvey in South Texas and now in Louisiana as the storm which has um, has been hovering over the Gulf in the past few days uh, has now made a second landfall near the Texas-Louisiana border. That conversation is coming up shortly. In the meantime, uh, as tens of thousands remain displaced in shelters after more than 13,000 were reportedly rescued from swamped homes and cars amid the record rainfall, some 50 inches in some places, there are now some some encouraging signs, at least for the folks uh, in and near Houston, as the rain has finally begun to taper there after all of those uh, hellish days. And uh, even some sunshine is rumored to have poked out in some places. Is that right, Desi Doyne? (laughs) Yes, there's actual sunshine now. In Houston, of course, you know, not not so great for Point East. I can only, yeah, but I I gotta say, for these people who have been suffering uh, over the past four or five days, I can only imagine how... uh, how good, how encouraging some of that sunlight, sunlight however brief, must, uh, must feel right around now. Uh, so that's at least uh, some encouraging sign there. As well, the Houston mayor announced today that the 
city's main airport would be opening for some flights late on Wednesday. That's a good sign as well. And some of the record floodwaters have now reportedly begun to recede, at least in parts of Houston. Desi, you have family in Texas and in Houston specifically. Um, you, you've heard from your family uh, confirming that, in fact, the water is beginning to fall a bit? Yes, I have actual visual confirmation that the water has begun to recede in some areas. And your family is uh, all and doing everybody's okay, okay at this time? at least for my family. Very good. Uh, as uh, one meteorologist described it uh, after these last five or so hell days. Houstonians may finally be seeing what he called the end of the beginning. Mm. So that kind of puts it into perspective. There is a long way to go. Officials uh, continue to warn that the death toll from the deluge uh, last I checked, I think, is up to 20 confirmed dead at this uh, hour. We're seeing uh, different numbers, Des. Have you yes, seen Yes, um, different numbers I have seen actually up to 30, but it's hard right now to determine whether that's the uh, greater region from Corpus Christi mm-hmm. to Houston or if they're specifically talking about Houston proper. That that number in any event is likely to, uh, to right. surge in the coming days, according to officials. Here's Lieutenant, Just- uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honore. Uh, He was uh, eventually placed in charge of Hurricane Katrina disaster recovery. Yes, this is retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore. Uh, Back in uh, 2005, 12 years ago to the day this week, uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honore on uh, CNN today discussing what... uh, well, what we can expect to find now in, in the coming days as the uh, rain finally stops, at least in Houston. There's still a major effort. The first step after search and rescue is uh, we have to go into every home and see if there was anyone left. And from our experience at Katrina, that's when we really found the bad news because most of the people we found were elderly, disabled, mm-hmm. and they were home alone. Okay. So that sad story is still yet to happen right now we'll still be for another 72 hours i think rescuing the living people that require because the water is still rising along the brazil this is going to get worse before it get better we have not seen the worst of this yet my estimate from my experience here in america and around the world uh the worst is yet to come uh, that's not good news. No, the uh, worst is yet to come for, for people in, in those areas. A lot of the uh, uh, disabled and elderly who were not able to get out of their houses at all. And remember, this flooding happened in places that they describe as 500-year flood zones, places that have not flooded. It's places that haven't flooded in, in living, living memory. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, it's it's this is a moving target when you are a, a, a like the National Weather Service trying to describe for people how vast a, a flood can be and how bad it can get. So, And uh, for those people whose houses have never flooded before, been through many hurricanes, uh, all of a sudden, by the time the water started rising there, uh, they had nowhere to go. Yeah, you can't rely these days on historical flood patterns. You just can't. Those are all out the window with climate change. Uh, elsewhere, where uh, Harvey has made its second landfall over the past 24 hours, flooding has begun to swamp some Louisiana towns. And authorities warn that major flooding could spread both east and north, uh, east to, uh, to New Orleans where the low-lying city is already facing problems with its pumping system. And farther north, much farther north, into Tennessee, into Arkansas, even my old home state of Missouri, as this storm moves northward, finally 
beginning to, to, well, finally weakening and dissipating, but still carrying a lot of uh, a lot of water. That was uh, picked up as uh, as the storm hung out over the overly warm Gulf of Mexico waters. Uh, and those have been sucked up into Harvey, and that uh, rain has got to fall somewhere in the uh, in the days ahead. In Port Arthur, Texas, for example, on the border with Louisiana, some 100 people are reportedly taking shelter, um, had been taking shelter already, and now they're trying to stay dry as the waters flood the shelter itself. Yeah. Those uh, these are uh, people who were taking refuge there who are uh, now largely stranded by flood water on all sides in this shelter. They have nowhere else to go at this hour. Uh, meanwhile, back in Houston, we spoke yesterday about the swamped oil refineries and uh, Exxon's announcement that uh, two of its facilities, at least, were releasing toxic petrochemicals into the floodwaters and into the air. And today now we have uh, what appear to be very serious warnings from this uh, chemical company named uh, Arkema, I think is how you pronounce it. They, uh, their own CEO has said that, um, that they are almost certain that disaster, including fire and explosions, could occur at any time at that plant. Yeah, this is the uh, Arkema chemical plant in Crosby, Texas. That's about 20, 25 miles northeast of Houston. It's actually between Houston and Port Arthur. It, the facility in Crosby, Texas, received about 40 inches of rain. Uh, the whole area, as you noted, was heavily flooded. Um, the plant itself uh, has been without electric service since Sunday. Now, this is a huge deal because it has on-site chemicals that require refrigeration. They're volatile chemicals that require refrigeration so that they don't explode. So they've lost their uh, electric power, and then they lost additional refrigeration when the backup generator that employees set up. They set up backup generators. Those were then flooded. Then the workers attempted to transfer those volatile chemicals uh, from the warehouses where they're stored into uh, diesel-powered refrigerated containers. And they say now that uh, some of the refrigeration of those backup containers has also been compromised Mm. because of the floods. Uh, They're trying to monitor the temperature levels remotely, but they do say that they expect those chemicals to catch fire or explode within the next six days or so. And they say, like you noted, that there is no way now to prevent a fire or an explosion at the plant. Um, It's under six feet of water right now. Uh, They can't get to the chemicals. It's not safe to get to the chemicals. They've evacuated. And they've evacuated a mile and a half area around that plant. uh, Residents around that plant. Residents and uh, the plant itself now, I think the workers have left. There's There's no one there. there To stop it. They can't. And, uh, you know, you can bring up additional questions as to why there might be residents who live nearby a plant that stores volatile chemicals, but that's another question for another day. I guess it is, and I don't even know how. I mean, even if the... So they lost grid power, they lost backup power, the refrigerate, special refrigeration units are beginning to fail. I don't even know how at this point they go back, even if the uh, if the power is restored to the grid, uh, who wants to go near that to find out how close these chemicals are to exploding and, exactly. and doing something about it's, it? It's actually very similar to wow. the Fukushima nuclear plant, remember? Yeah, it yeah. was swamped, they ran out of power, then the backup diesel generators yep. were swamped, and they failed. So we have these uh, redundant systems aren't so redundant after Unbel- all. Yeah. 
unbelievable. I did look on the map. At least uh, there appears to be no nuclear plants in the immediate vicinity of this storm. Right. Uh, there are some up in Arkansas. Uh, some in to, Louisiana, to, in Louisiana, near New Orleans. Yep. Um, there's some in South Texas. They continued running, and they have been, uh, I think, these particular power plants that would be at risk from Hurricane Harvey have been hardened against flooding after the disaster in Fukushima when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission required our nuclear plants to upgrade their systems. So that, so far, so good. For now. Um, and amidst all of this, and this is related, this is both political and related. Uh, yesterday we noted uh, on the show uh, Trump's flag-waving appearance uh, down in Corpus Christi, Texas, before a crowd of supporters that seemingly appeared from nowhere to cheer him on, according to the pool reports. Uh, this is outside a firehouse where a platform and a microphone just happened to have been set up for him. Uh, and a fantastic photo op next to fire trucks uh, as the Associated Press, uh, as, as their coverage reports. Uh, the president did not mention those who died in the storm in his comments or those who were, were forced from their homes by the floodwaters. He basked in the attention of cheering supporters outside the fire station. What a crowd. What a turnout. Trump declared before waving a Texas flag from atop a platform positioned between two fire trucks. This is historic. It's epic what happened. But, you know, it happened in Texas and Texas can handle anything, he said. Um, what little damage Trump saw, says AP, boarded up windows, down tree limbs and fences askew was uh, through the tinted windows of his SUV and his motorcade as it ferried him from the Corpus Christi airport to the firehouse in a city that is already nearly completely back to normal. Uh, he said, uh, we want to do it better than ever before. We want to be looked at in five years, in ten years from now, as this is the way to do it. It seemed to be all about him. It's all about the optics and uh, making and him the, look good. But, yeah, about about him, how he responds uh, to this disaster, um, rather than the people who are fighting for their lives even at this hour. Ari Fleischer, Ari Fleischer, of all people, who served as uh, George W. Bush's press secretary, uh, said there was something missing from Trump's remarks in Corpus Christi. Empathy for the people who suffer, said Fleischer. The first thing he should have said was that his heart goes out to those people in Houston who are going through this and that the government is there to help him help them recover. Fleischer's remarks were on Fox News channel, of course. Uh, but more importantly, as AP notes, Trump's largely upbeat reassurances about a speedy recovery stood in contrast to the more measured assessment coming from emergency management officials. There's a long, difficult road ahead in recovering from a storm whose flooding has displaced tens of thousands, they say. Um, and the president's vow of swift action on billions of dollars in disaster aid is at odds with his proposed budget. Remember that budget that uh, was back in <laughs> April that cut pretty much everything? FEMA, NOAA, National Weather Service, Coast Guard. It yes. would uh, eliminate uh, the very program that helps Americans without flood insurance to rebuild their homes. And it cuts grants to help states reduce the risk of flooding before disaster strikes. Trump's budget proposal for 2018 zeroes out community development block grants 
which was a key program that helped the Gulf Coast rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. That same program helped New York and New Jersey come back from Superstorm Sandy. Amid other things, the, the, those grants uh, help people without flood insurance coverage to rebuild their homes. That was exactly what Donald Trump called for slashing in his uh, budget proposal in April. Hopefully, Congress uh, <laughs> ignores that as they, uh, as they get ready to come back after their uh, summer recess, after the um, Labor Day holiday coming up. Hopefully, they ignore those cuts. They've got to pass a... They've got to pass a budget by the end of September. Uh, so will they, you know, end up slashing all of these programs? And will Republicans in Texas who voted against aid to victims of Superstorm Sandy, including Senator Ted Cruz, by the way, who is himself up for reelection down in Texas this year, will they find a change of heart this time around, now that it's their people in Texas, in their home state, in the middle of a disaster, Ted Cruz is from Houston. And what about all of those other executive orders that Donald Trump signed, even as most of the nation was concerned about what may now be the most costly natural, natural disaster in American history? We're joined by Congressman Hank Johnson of Georgia to discuss all of that and more right after this on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As the then Category 4 Hurricane Harvey swept into the Gulf Coast of Texas on Friday night, threatening millions of Americans in what uh, was then predicted to be and has in fact become a catastrophic record storm, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, took the opportunity while the media was otherwise occupied with the storm and Americans were preparing to fight for their lives to issue several extremely controversial orders. Among them, Donald Trump signed an order to ban transgender members of our armed forces. He issued a very controversial pardon to the notorious former Maricopa County, Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio, after he had been found in contempt of federal court orders to stop profiling and detaining suspected undocumented immigrants based on nothing more than the way they looked. And an order that has received much less attention, uh, he issued an executive order rescinding one by President Obama that had, back in 2015, following the deployment of military vehicles and weaponry on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, by a local police force after the killing of an African-American teenager by a local cop, placed limits on the Pentagon's so-called 1033 program. Pre President Obama put those limits on that program. Donald Trump did away with them with a stroke of his pen on Friday night. That program had, for years, given billions of dollars worth of surplus military equipment, 
such as weapons, aircraft, even grenade launchers to local law enforcement agencies for free and without any restrictions whatsoever. Obama's order had placed modest restrictions on that program, which had resulted in some cases in automatic military rifles going missing, uh, potentially even being sold by law enforcement officials. That's what the restrictions were meant to avoid. And of course, that restriction has now been lifted. Trump, as the uh, storm was beginning to batter South Texas, removed even those modest restrictions, once again, freeing up military weapons to flow to local law enforcement agencies, including even school district security agencies. In response, Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky announced legislation to prohibit the transfer of some military equipment to local law enforcement, charging it is one thing for federal officials to work with local authorities to reduce or solve crimes, but it is another for them to subsidize militarization. In his statement, the senator said Americans must never sacrifice their liberty for an elusive and dangerous or false security. The militarization of our law enforcement is due to an unprecedented expansion of government power in this realm. Senator Rand Paul said on the House side of Congress, Democratic Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia's 4th Congressional District and a longtime member of the U.S. House Armed Services Committee has introduced a bill for restrictions on that Department of Defense 1033 program. He's uh, introduced that bill for the last three years in a row. He joined us back in 2015 after first introducing it and joins us again today to discuss it and the op-ed on this matter that he has written for publication in Friday's Guardian. Congressman Johnson, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Great to have you here. I want to ask you about uh, what the president did this week regarding that 1033 program and how your legislation if Republicans allow it to move forward, might affect it. But since some of these uh, executive actions I described by Trump as Harvey was barreling ashore late on Friday, in particular his pardon of uh, the notorious Sheriff Joe Arpaio, actually seems to be related in a way. I wanted to get your reaction to that pardon as well as to the ongoing uh, Harvey disaster in Texas and now Louisiana. First, your thoughts on the pardon of uh, Joe Arpaio. Well, President Trump has proclaimed loudly uh, by that action that he will use the power of the presidency to benefit himself and to benefit his supporters, his friends, and his family. And so it does not augur well for a future for this country under Donald Trump. It seems that that pardon is sort of a piece with the Trump's message to law enforcement that violation of the rule of law by police will be tolerated by this administration, it seems. Yes, yeah, so to follow up the notorious uh, pardon of uh, Joe Ar- Arpaio with a rescinding of President Obama's executive order, which placed limits on the Pentagon's 1033 program, mm-hmm. It does send a clear message to law enforcement that it's open season on the civil rights of anyone who you choose to violate the civil rights of, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's, it's not a good thing for America. I know that, uh, and I want to talk to you more about that 1033 program, but uh, I, uh, on this uh, 
the Harvey uh, disaster we're looking at now down in Texas and Louisiana. I know after past disasters, such as Superstorm Sandy on the East Coast, a number of Republican members of the House and the Senate, specifically from Texas, had blocked disaster relief. In uh, 2005, then-Congressman, now Vice President Mike Pence had insisted on uh, spending cuts to offset aid to those desperately in need after Hurricane Katrina. Congress is reconvening next week after its summer recess, after the holiday. Do you anticipate there's going to be any problem passing appropriate emergency relief this time uh, for the folks in Texas and Louisiana who are now desperately going to need it, Congressman? I think the values that uh, Democrats have, which are different from those of Republicans, will shine through as Congress uh, comes back into session and as emergency spending for disaster relief comes to the uh, table for Mm -hmm. immediate action, I think you'll find Democrats have the value system that enables us to uh, almost reflexively uh, support uh, the needs of our fellow citizens in Texas. They they need government support, and we're going to make sure that they have it. Now, on the other hand, Republicans have showed the values that they hold dear by trying to play politics with disaster relief when it came to New Jersey and New York and Hurricane Sandy. And uh, they wanted to play games like say that the bill was loaded up with uh, a bunch of pork, which it was not. uh, They wanted to say that we have to have spending cuts to offset the spending increase that we will have with the disaster relief. That was playing games with uh, people's lives. And uh, their value system, quite frankly, is to not help people. Uh, They'd rather help corporations and privatize everything. And so now that Republicans in Congress Republicans from Texas who are in Congress are faced with a uh, disaster of humongous proportions. We're going to see exactly how hypocritical they can be. I predict that they will be at the trough of federal spending to help their constituents, and they know it's the right thing to do. They know it was the right thing to do for New Jersey and New York, but they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. But I think they'll do it for their people. And Democrats, ironically, are going to step right up to the plate and do the right thing and help the people of Texas to come back from this uh, disaster. Last time we had you on, Congressman, uh, was back in 2015. It was a a different world in so many ways. But at the time, you had introduced the Stop Militarizing Law Enforcement Act following the uh, disturbing militarized presence of local law enforcement in response to the protests following the police killing of Michael Brown, the African-American teenager in, in Ferguson, Missouri. The bill was meant to Put some curbs on the Pentagon's so-called 1033 program that gives these surplus weapons of war, really, to uh, to cops. We've got, uh, you know, we have since learned that the L.A. Unified School District had actually received grenade launchers from the Defense Department's program. You know, campus police at the University of Louisiana received M16 rifles, the list went on and on, billions of dollars. To my knowledge, your bill to try to put some curbs on that did not come up for a vote. 
back in 2015 at the time. You've been reintroducing it ever since. President Obama had placed some restrictions on the type of gear that would be given away to law enforcement via that program through executive order, however, which means that Donald Trump was able to overturn it. Can you explain in general quickly what Obama did to restrict that 1033 program how Trump's new order changes that and how your bill comes into uh, into into play since uh, Trump has overturned that uh, previous order. Well, what uh, President Obama's executive order did was to ban the transfer of certain types of military grade weaponry to uh, law enforcement agencies around the country, including campus uh, university mm-hmm. uh, police departments. Things like, uh, you pointed out, grenade launchers, uh, explosives, uh, armed uh, drones, mm-hmm. unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, bayonets. Why would, a, why would a police department need bayonets? Mm. Uh, things like uh, weaponry that was more than 50 calibers, uh, you know, high-powered uh, uh, weaponry such as, uh, as that rapid-fire semi-automatic weapons uh, of 50 calibers or more, that kind of tracked vehicles, uh, which were basically army tanks, uh, were banned by President Obama's executive order. And what President Trump has done, pursuant to a promise that he made to the law enforcement lobby, which is basically the fraternal order of police, in order to gain their endorsement during the campaign, he promised to rescind President Obama's order. And so that is exactly what he did yesterday. So it's again, uh, the flood uh, gates are open for the transfer of that type of weaponry that I just described mm. uh, to law enforcement agencies across the country, regardless of whether or not they need it or not, or whether or not they are trained to use the equipment. You note, uh, Congressman, in your in your op-ed for Friday's Guardian that uh, what makes it dangerous is the fact, among the things that make it dangerous, is the fact that the 1033 program requires the equipment to be, quote, placed into use within 12 months of being acquired. What does that mean? Uh, lo- local law enforcement agencies have to take these mine-resistant troop transporters and automatic rifles and grenade launchers and somehow deploy them? Well, it, placing, yeah. placing that equipment into use means uh, to place it into use. That means to use it. And so that means that in any kind of inappropriate situation that happens to pop up, then law enforcement uh, pulls out uh, these toys, these weapons of war, and uses them. And if they don't use them, then they have to turn them back in. And so it's a recipe for misuse. It's a recipe for abuse of civil rights of the citizens who law enforcement are sworn to protect and serve. It's frightening uh, that this onslaught of uh, weaponry from straight from the battlegrounds of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq uh, will find its way back to the streets of uh, America's cities and towns to be misused uh, oftentimes by those who it falls into the hands of. 
I know you've got to uh, you've got to run. I'm going to try to get in really quickly. Two more questions here. One is uh, on this bill. Uh, I know over in the Senate, Rand Paul has been introducing similar restrictions. Uh, do you feel that uh, there's any chance at this point in the uh, in the House uh, that your Republicans, who are needed to move this forward, will join you in this effort, and that it will get any more traction? to put restrictions on this 1033 program in uh, in the upcoming sessions? Well, I think as more people ponder the fact that law enforcement agencies can order this military equipment directly from the battlefields without the benefit of any civilian authority approving it, uh, then that should cause people to, especially libertarians like uh, Rand Paul, mm-hmm. Uh, it should cause them to understand that uh, this is undemocratic, it's unconstitutional in terms of how it's applied, and it's very dangerous to uh, people not just in the inner cities, but also in the hamlets and towns throughout uh, America, where you'll have law enforcement armed to the teeth without uh, approval of the civilian uh, city council or county commissions that are in charge of procurement uh, um, decisions mm-hmm. without their input. And so it puts the police into position of being more powerful than the government that is supposed to be controlling them. And uh, certainly the people who are the government uh, are put at risk when uh, government power, especially in the hands of bureaucrats, Uh, exceeds the direction of the civilian authority, which is always supposed to be superior to law enforcement, just like it is to the military. I I see. Yeah. So it's it's frightful to think that we are bringing ourselves so close to the brink of martial law. And I think that when uh, my friends uh, on the other side of the aisle understand how far this can be taken by those who would abuse the system. And we have somebody in the highest office in the land who has shown that he will abuse our Constitution and its principles. But when you have that kind of power in the hands of people such as Donald Trump, then uh, the worst uh, that we can imagine can actually happen to our rights in this country. That's what I'm, uh, of course, most concerned about. I see that your bill currently has about 20 co-sponsors. Two of them, uh, Justin Amash from uh, Michigan and Tom McClintock from California, are Republicans. They're signed on. I hope that more will sign on uh, to this effort. Before I let you go, Congressman, uh, since you're concerned clearly about the the way this tr- uh, president is treating our uh, Constitution, there are, I think so far, uh, some three different Democratic members who have filed articles of impeachment for Donald J. Trump. Will you be signing on to articles of impeachment for this president when you uh, when you return from the recess? Well, as the facts develop, as as they begin to show grounds for impeachment for commission of bribery, treason, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, uh, then I will certainly uh, be one of the first to uh, sign on to uh, any impeachment resolutions. 
Okay, then. I hope, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of that has uh, become more than clear, and, and I would love to see more Democrats, uh, you know, making a statement here, as I suspect Republicans would at this point. Well, yeah. well, you know, Brad, I mean, we've heard a lot in the press, but we've not heard a whole lot in terms of oversight hearings and facts coming out before Congress, or uh, as issued by the uh, special counsel. And so it's going to take it's going to take uh, this kind of level of information that would cause me to sign on to support these resolutions. Although, isn't impeachment itself meant to be an investigation in the House? In fact, to get at those very facts that uh, you're you're referencing. Well, you you're very correct on that. You're you're very correct on that. But I think the level of the information that we should have as Congress people before we vote uh, on that. We've not yet gotten to that point yet, in my humble opinion. But as I said before, as the facts unfold and the facts are coming quickly uh, with ever hastening speed, um, you know, mm-hmm. they may reach the level by the time we get back that I'll be able to sign on to uh, an impeachment resolution. Oh, I hope so. That uh, the, the ever-increasing speed uh, is uh, killing us all, even uh, many of us in the media at this point trying to keep up with it. Congressman Hank Johnson, Democrat from Georgia's 4th District, I know you're short on time. We'll have you back in the future, I hope, uh, to talk about it. I know you've got an election bill. I'd hope to ask you about that uh, special election recently on one. 100% unverifiable voting machines down in Georgia's 6th District. We'll hold it for another time. Well, uh, you know, yeah. Brad, uh, a loss by less, by less than 3,500 votes back on April 18th mm-hmm. with demonstrated um, uh, technical, technical glitches in the counting of mm-hmm. ballots in, uh, from Fulton County, Georgia, uh, doesn't pass the smell test with me. And uh, it lends uh, a lot of um, justification for uh, for uh, legislation that would uh, that would uh, protect the in- integrity of our elections. And I look forward to uh, discussing. Uh, the bill that I've introduced uh, with you at some point in the future. It's called the Election Integrity Act of 2017. I will point folks to uh, information on that act, as well as your uh, Stop Militarizing Law Enforcement Act of 2017. H.R. 1556. There you go. I'll point folks to that and to your uh, Guardian uh, op-ed. Once that uh, is uh, published, we'll get a link to that as well. Congressman Hank Johnson, always great talking to you, my friend. I will uh, also point folks to your uh, website at the House, hankjohnson.house.gov, for more information on all of the above. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with more broadcast right after this. I am Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help out however you can. 
A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen, thank you very much for that music. Helps me calm down a little bit today. Well, things are difficult Uh, right now. Yeah, to say the least, to say the least. Uh, My thanks again to Hank Johnson for uh, for joining us. And um, we will uh, hope to have him back uh, soon because I did want to talk about his, well, actually uh, quite a few things with him, uh, including that election integrity bill that would uh, require paper ballots for every vote cast at least on new machines. Oh. Yeah, doesn't... Uh, doesn't quite get there. Well, but. it doesn't affect the machines that are used in um, in uh, the congressman's own home state, uh, which are just the worst of the worst when it comes to voting machines. Those old deep old uh, 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And uh, he talked about the problems that they had on election night for the primary of that special election. But they also had problems because the 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 company the the college the university Kennesaw State University that has that programs all of the voting machines and all of the voter registration systems across the state of Georgia had kept uh, the all of the voter databases as well as passwords. <laughs> passwords for the voting systems themselves on an unprotected website for at least a year, perhaps longer prior to that primary election. Uh, And so at least that uh, college, uh, Kennesaw State University, will no longer be in charge of uh, all of the programming for all of those systems over the next year. They're going to be phased out, but then it's going to be returned to the secretary of state's office themselves Secretary of State's office in Georgia, which has been purging voters like crazy uh, and which completely ignored the computer scientists who were begging them to move to paper ballots before this special election. And frankly, over the past, I don't know how many years. In fact, if I remember correctly, the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brian Kemp, was actually not only dismissive, but he felt that there was some sort of attempt by the federal government to overtake his elections. And so he was aggressively against any assistance. Well, that was back before the presidential election. Yeah, when the uh, DHS was war was uh, warning officials about uh, you know foreign nations hacking into our voting systems and the DHS said hey we'll, we'll help you out we'll we'll check your systems out we'll see if you know from afar we'll do a scan we'll see if any uh, you know problems arise and uh, Brian Kemp would not even allow them to do that much so that's who uh, Secretary of State of Georgia Brian Kemp is. Uh, And so for the foreseeable future, Georgians are still forced to vote on 100 percent unverifiable voting systems. Whatever the results are reported as is what they will be, apparently, even as we head into a primary year in 2018. Uh, A couple of points I want to get to here uh, before we run short on time. I had mentioned also to the congressman about that ban that was lifted on um, or I should say restored that ban that was restored on, uh, on on transgender people serving in our U.S. military. 
That was also done as the storm Harvey was coming ashore and um, that uh, he, he signed off on that uh, policy that he sent to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis while everyone else was busy with the storm. Well, uh, now uh, I've seen a lot of people over the past uh, 24 hours citing this uh, from Mattis as uh, some sort of wonderful thing that, uh, oh, look, Jim Mattis is defying President Donald Trump. Well, I don't read it that way. Uh, when he signed that guidance on, um, I guess it was Friday night, uh, part of the guidance said that you must, uh, that the military must stop recruiting and enlisting anyone who is transgender and that it would be up to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis to decide what to do with the thousands of transgender service members who are serving honorably in the U.S. military, that he would have six months to make that decision. Well, now USA Today reported after we got off air yesterday that Defense Secretary Mattis uh, announced that transgender troops will be allowed to continue serving in the military pending the results of a study by experts. Oh, there's an idea. Of course, the uh, experts who studied this previously already found that uh, that uh, transgender service members uh, cause no problem to uh, to our military readiness. In any event, USA Today reports the announcement follows the order from Trump that was signed late Friday, uh, declaring that transgender service members can no longer serve in the military, effectively reversing the Obama administration's policy that had lifted that ban. In his statement, Mattis said, once the panel reports its recommendations and following my consultation with the Secretary of Homeland Security, I will provide my advice to the president concerning implementation of his policy direction in the interim. Current policy with respect to currently serving members will remain in place. Mattis, uh, Mattis's move buys time for the Pentagon to determine how and if it will allow thousands of transgender troops to continue to serve, whether they will receive medical treatment or how they will be discharged. Uh, and so the part of the policy barring new members from enlisting, from joining, that still appears to be in effect. And in truth, for those, uh, you know, I've seen uh, progressives and Democrats, uh, liberals, folks over at Daily Coast saying, hey, this is wonderful what uh, Mattis is doing. Look, he's he's defying Trump. No, he doesn't seem to actually be defying him at all. Seems to be going along for now in any event with exactly what uh, what what Trump had called for. Last year, the Pentagon had commissioned a study. This was already studied. Uh, the nonpartisan RAND Corporation examined the effect of military readiness of allowing transgender troops to serve openly and the cost of providing them with medical treatment, which is one of the things that uh, Trump had cited. We can't afford it. We can't afford to keep all of these transgender... The study had estimated that a few to several thousand transgender troops are on uh, are on the active duty force out of some one point three million serving researchers found that the uh, the paying for their health care for their health care needs, whatever they are, would amount to between two and eight million dollars per year and their effect on readiness would be negligible. Now, total military, we've reported this before, total military health care expenditures were $6.2 billion in 2014. So we're talking about uh, the needs for these particular troops, 2 to $8 million. The medical cost of trans military members is one one thousandth, one one thousandth of a percent 
of the DOD's annual spending. It is minuscule. It is nothing. In his original tweet, uh, when he announced this policy, Trump said that the military, quote, cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs (laughs) of transgender service members. Well, if you want to look at those medical costs, a new study now out from the Palm Center found that the cost of replacing transgender service members averages around $75,000 uh, in you know lost training and recruiting someone else. $75,000 if you're going to toss those uh, each of those people out. That compared to the average annual costs for transition-related health care for transgender service members who, who decide to use it, $656. So, yeah, that's the tremendous medical cost of transgender service members. $75,000 to replace them or an average of $656 a year to take care of their needs. So uh, on that point, uh, in any event, I, I don't give much credit to uh, Mattis. Now, uh, two prominent civil rights groups have uh, have sued the Trump administration. They, they filed that lawsuit on Monday. Uh, the human rights campaign uh, sued in Washington state on behalf of two transgender individuals who want to join the military. They'll now be barred from doing so. And on behalf of one current service member who is transgender and seeking appointment as an officer. He's looking to become an officer. He's already been serving. He's already uh, been trained. He's already done that. He wants to continue serving. Uh, actually, I say he. I don't even know if it's he or she, uh, actually. But the point uh, is we've already uh, invested exactly. quite a bit in that person. And the, the, the point is that person would like to serve as a patriotic American who would like to serve their country. And they're being told, nope, sorry, we don't want you. The American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, also sued separately in Maryland on behalf of six transgender soldiers, some of whom who, who have served for decades. The human rights campaign alleges that the uh, Trump's ban is, quote, dripping with animus and that it is in clear violation of the equal protection and due process provisions of the Fifth and First Amendment. Fifth Amendment and the First Amendment's guarantee of the right to free expression. They are seeking to uh, permanently block the Trump administration from enforcing the ban. And a lot of legal experts say that is likely to happen. Uh, That, uh, you know, there needs to be a reason when you do these things. Uh, And more importantly, there needs to be a process that, uh, yes, the president of the United States has great control over what happens with the armed forces and uh, the, the rules of military justice are different from those of you and I. Uh, the rights that apply to us, the constitutional rights that apply to us, don't necessarily apply to military members. However, there must be a cause for depriving military members of those rights, and there must be a process, a due process. And in this case, the due process that was uh, moved forward by the previous administration found that there is no reason to bar these members from uh, from service. So uh, both cases uh, note that Trump did not go through the proper Pentagon channels to develop or to implement this ban. He just instead, he just abruptly announced it on Twitter, didn't even let the heads of the military know about it. Uh, That after lobbying by uh, by right wing groups outside of the government. So, um, yeah, don't know if Mattis is due credit there or not, but I'll, I'll give him at least some credit here when it comes to uh, this response right now to North Korea. 
Mattis is taking uh, a less extreme stance, as TPM describes it, on North Korea than President Donald Trump has. He has been issuing escalating statements after the nation fired a missile over Japan earlier this week. Mattis, however, told pool reporters quoted by Reuters that, quote, we are never out of diplomatic solutions. That is very comforting to hear. Mattis was scheduled to meet with the uh, South Korean defense minister uh, at the Pentagon this week. And uh, he said, we continue to work together and the minister and I share responsibility to provide for the protection of our nations, our populations and our interests. That after Trump on Wednesday had complained uh, about negotiating with North Korea at all and had declared, quote, talking is not the answer. Well, now at least the uh, Secretary of Defense uh, says, yeah, we're uh, we're never out of diplomatic solutions. We are always willing to talk in some fashion. Trump's tweet was an escalation from a more measured statement from the White House uh, on Tuesday after North Korea had fired a missile over over Japan. At that point, Trump had declared that all options are on the table. Uh, now he says, well, all options again, except for talking, apparently, <laughs> except for diplomacy. Talking is not the answer, said the president of the United States. So uh, whether that's uh, Mattis defying the president or not, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, two top State Department officials have announced that they would also be leaving their posts. Uh, this uh, was reported by Foreign Policy amidst the uh, amidst the storm, so it sort of got lost. Tracy Ann Jacobson, who is a career diplomat, currently leads the Bureau for International Organization Affairs. Apparently, she said on Friday that she would be retiring early in October, according to Foreign Policy. William Rivington Brownfield, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, also said that he would leave his post early by the end of September. A spokesperson for the State Department told Foreign Policy that Brownfield had not announced his retirement uh, publicly yet, however. But the departures at the State Department come amid signs that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson that his position in the State Department could be in very, very big trouble. According to, uh, well, a lot of reports now, uh, Trump is increasingly frustrated with Rex Tillerson. And again, I find it remarkable that here I am coming to some version of the defense of the former CEO of ExxonMobil. Uh, but he uh, Tillerson distanced him, uh, distanced himself on Sunday on Fox News, of all places, um, from the uh, from Trump's own response to the violence in Charlottesville a week or two earlier. Yes, there's still that response to Charlottesville and the uh, the neo-Nazi uh, protests there, protests and a murder of a counter protester there. Uh, here's what uh, very briefly what uh, Rex Tillerson, secretary of state, had to say on Fox News with Chris Wallace. When the president gets into the kind of controversy he does and the U.N. committee responds the way it does, it seems to say they, they begin to doubt our, whether we're living those values. I don't believe anyone doubts the American people's values or the commitment of the American government or the government's agencies to advancing those values and defending those values. And, and the president's values? The president speaks for himself, Chris. 
And then there was that long silence, and Chris Wallace said, are you uh, separating yourself uh, from that, sir? From what the president says, Tillerson said, I've spoken, I've made my own comments as to our values, as well in a speech that I gave to the State Department. Um, Two uh, longtime State Department officials, Aaron David Miller, uh, who was a Middle East negotiator for uh, during Democratic and Republican administrations, uh, and Richard uh, Sikulski, who served for 10 years from 2005 to 2015 as a member of the Secretary of State's Office of Policy Planning. They say that even in Trump land, this weekend's comments by the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, are breathtaking in their implications. They say in a combined 50 plus years of working for secretaries of state of both parties, we've never heard the nation's top diplomat so economically and frontally distance himself from his own boss. Secretaries of state just don't do that, they say, largely because a seamless interaction with the president is critically important to the success of the nation's top diplomat. They also say that one could argue that Tillerson should be applauded for standing up for his principles in that Fox News interview. But clearly in doing so and implicitly criticizing the president on the values issue, the secretary essentially relegates himself to the margins at the same time, uh, essentially sending the message. Well, why listen to anything Tillerson has to say if the most powerful man in the country, if not the world, has his own view that departs from and contradicts his own So in one sense, he was sort of undermining himself. They say, assuming his comments are not walked back, uh, Tillerson stood up for what he believed in on the issue of American values, reflecting the tradition and philosophy of his beloved Boy Scouts. Yes, he used to run the Boy Scouts as well. And they say, let's hope he won't pay a price for doing so. Let's hope indeed at this point we can take all of the non-insane, non-crazy people that we can find running the U.S. government. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Congressman Hank Johnson, Democrat from uh, Georgia's 4th Congressional District, my guest today, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site. Uh, you can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. My great thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us try to continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. Your support is appreciated now more than ever. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.